Morris, and you are about to embark on the next Pioneer Knowledge Services Because You Need to Know, a digital resource for you to listen to folks share their experience and knowledge around the field of knowledge management and nonprofit work. Hi there, my name is Kurt Conrad. I live in Pasco, Washington. The most interesting thing near me, there are many to choose from. I guess I have to pick the DOE Hanford site because it was started in World War II to produce plutonium that was dropped on Nagasaki. And it has a whole bunch of nuclear waste and a bunch of decommissioned reactors, all sorts of fun stuff. Also on the site, which is kind of interesting, is Rattlesnake Mountain, which happens to be the tallest treeless mountain in North America. I love working in, I'd say, really kind of negotiations, either verbal negotiations or what I do a lot, which is really negotiating automated systems. I work in markup, and that is a negotiation framework. And so I'm constantly involved in trying to get the bots to understand what we're thinking and get them to do what we're hoping that they do. And I would say I envision a future that really uh, rapidly reverses global extinctions. That's kind of the big problem. And if we don't try to get a handle on it, I'm not sure what will happen to us. Smart. In an organization that is dealing with technological advances, how do you see or who would you call as the most responsible party for its internal processes? Is it IT or does it just materialize out of thin air? I have to give you a standard XML consultant's answer. That depends. I, I can't say I've seen any one pattern. It, it, well, in fact, the serious question, yeah, I mean, the serious question is who should be responsible for policy? Okay. I mean, this was one of the topics we wanted to get into, right? I picked up Paul Strassman at an early age, the politics of information management. And he says right out, IT is primarily an issue of politics and the technology is all secondary. Yeah, right. The question is who's making the policy decisions? Organizationally, it's supposed to be management. In holistic life cycle organizations, you see line level people and operations getting involved in that as well, hopefully. But the phenomenon that I see coming from a technology space is it's often technologists mm -hmm. that have positioned themselves in the process where they're implicitly making policy. And the first time I wrote about this back in the 90s, the stories that I used as examples yeah. were the derivatives industry, because we just had a huge blow up derivatives. And the issue there was financial technologists were making risk decisions for organizations, private companies, public organizations, all blew up in that first derivative mm. thing because the management group couldn't see the risk. They didn't understand the technology. They couldn't talk about it. They didn't have the conceptual frameworks to deal with it. It was completely outside of their purview. And that allowed the technologists basically to come in and say, okay, I get to define what the risk profile for your organization is. Now, you're using policy and meaning the same as governance. No. Okay. Can you can you split that hair for me? I mean, because sure. I have an idea what governance is, but I, to me, it's like, well, it's policy. You're saying it's not. And again, back to Strassman. His definition of policy is what you do. What your organization does, what you do is policy. Now, governance usually comes in that we're trying to define norms for policy to define policy standards, and that would be the result of governance process. Uh. Those policy standards may or may not impact behavior. So the actual policy organization could differ from anything 
that's been decided or published, at least in the way I look at so it. So policy in this framework is more action. Policy is yes. action, not in my mind. Yes. When you say policy, that's regulation, that's paperwork, that's rules, that's parameters. But more so, it's just the operational flow and action. And you could say those guiding documents are trying to align policy mm. around a set of behavioral yeah. ends or a set of objectives or other metrics right. or, or whatever. Tell me where governance should be in this to help steer it. Because it sounds like what you're saying is that the technologists have kind of, what was the old term? The uh, land grab. There was kind of a land grab for the action because they could bring a lot of automation to bear, but who was like the old uh, fox mm -hmm. in the hen house kind of thing, right? There was no oversight to what they were doing. Very often. How do you fix that? Um, usually when you get an organization, we have an issue like that. I figure out who should be involved in making the decision, usually around a publishing system, right? Bring in those stakeholders and have them involved in the decision-making process. Open it up, get more people involved. How many get involved? Uh, it's a function of the organization. Sometimes it's still a small group. Sometimes, you know, it might actually span different wings of, of the larger organization. Depends on how important those data standards are and the uh, system which is being put in. Well, in order to have that oversight, back to your paradigm that the governance kind of drives the policy, or at least mm -hmm. builds the framework that it should operate in, that oversight piece is almost as kind of translucent to the point where unless everybody understands the technology, how the widgets work, how how is it that you could have positive attributable oversight to something if you don't know how it works? And that's one of the challenges. Often, it, well, I'll tell you, I'm working in markup, right? Okay. So I'm thinking of one client and specifically that had this issue. And as I pulled the management group and their support group together and we started dealing with those issues, I gave them training in XPath. I wanted mm. them to actually be able to talk about the parts of the markup yeah. system that we were talking yeah. about. And that required a little bit of training so people got to where mm -hmm. they could talk about it. At least have some awareness around all the moving parts. Another thing that kind of occurs to me, it was an organization that was trying to move into markup. So it's kind of a startup situation. And they had a project they were focusing on and in the lead-up conversations, it was clear that the group didn't really understand what they were talking about. So they're talking past each other a lot. Mm. And so when I came in to give them two weeks of training, the first thing actually brought these management issues in up front. And I ran them through a structured discussion process that really got them then on the same page. They were synced on what the organizational objectives were. They could then actually explain what the terminology was they were using when they talked about this stuff get on the same page, talk about it using a shared language, be able to move forward effectively. In the framework of today's world where there's so much on the shelf for software and solutions, maybe you're trusting another third-party source to validate and, you know what I mean? That If it's an off-the-shelf solution, you don't have to have the awareness and understanding of how it all mm -hmm. works under the hood as long as it does the job. Is that a shift from what it was, and I'm presuming it is, is that a major shift for most industries from 30 years ago where everybody built their own solutions oh. for everything to now where things are more of an enterprise software as a system? I think that depends on the market segment you're in. 
the segment I'm in, we're still doing an awful lot of customization. I'm actually doing a data conversion project right now from an old generation of data to a new one. Okay. And as the conversations have progressed this last week, I've got a secondary deliverable. Hmm. There is a need for a QA report to be developed. So I think it really depends on the market segment you're in. If you're into a commodity market, exactly, you're going to get pretty much what comes out of the box. And there, to go back to the previous topic, the technologists have made the policy decisions about what capabilities you get and what you don't, and you judge the product based on how that meshes with what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. In the world I'm working in, we start with the commercial products, and then we're building a customization on that, really reflecting the language the organization oh, uses when it talks about this data and when it manages these processes. It's mm -hmm. another term that we talked about last time was ontology. There's There are ontological aspects of this where we're really formalizing conceptual frameworks and logic systems and worldviews. And that stuff does not show up in out-of-the-box software. It, it just doesn't. So who should hear this? <laughs> out of all the organizational, right? I mean, who should hear this? Who should be like, oh, I'm, I better take notes. Is it the CEO? of an organization? Is it is it the CTO or the tech person? Or should HR be helping to drive this because it's a, it's a behavior element? Okay, Edwin, fine. Who owns knowledge management in the well, organization? the chief knowledge officer, of course. What if you don't have well, one? Well, then somebody better be driving the train or no one's driving the train. And I've seen models where it's top down. I've seen models where it's bottom up. Especially in markup, you find evangelists. They get pushed in the technology for one reason or another. And they end up basically going out to the rest of the organization saying, you need to pay attention to this. If it comes from top down, sure, that tends to make a lot of implementation stuff easier. But I see many of these initiatives really starting out somewhere in the middle. Hmm. Someone gets a clue and says, we need to go in this direction. Right. They do the study, they learn it, they go to the conferences, they get people on board. What impact does the community of practice have in all of this? I think they're critical. And in fact, you reminded me of kind of one of the most impressive ones that I've seen. It's built around the Bali Saj conference that's uh, kind of been hosted and managed by Mulberry Technologies <laughs> for just forever. I got back engaged with those conferences a few years ago. What it really reminded me of is the idea of a fire gourd. They've held on to this culture across years and decades, developed a community of practice that's really a functional working group. They're still doing <laughs> major standards development and technology development out of that community. Another one I had association with was Ontolog. That came out of uh, John Bozak's UBL effort. And I met Peter Yim there. Um, he brought uh, Leo Orpst in. As the conversation didn't really get traction inside the UBL committee, we went ahead and moved it outside and then brought in other people that we knew that were interested in the topic. That community practice is still going strong. Uh, ongoing dialogues and meetings, and uh, they work each year with NIST on an ontology summit. So I, I think these community practices are absolutely critical, especially when you're dealing with early stage technologies and people need to figure out ways to get up to speed. Let's talk about the birthplace of a community of practice, you know, this community effort. Uh, is it just a bunch of nerds sitting around saying, hey, let's get together and talk about something? Or is it something bigger than that? Most organizations do not formally sponsor within their framework communities of practice. They don't give them the tools to play with. They don't, they don't let them foster knowledge sharing and, and just free range collection of people that have different interests, but some do. 
Have you seen where an organization just set their organization on fire by having a, a splendid community of practice practice within the company or organization? And then let's go back to this two examples you just gave. And what feeds that? It's not a corporate payout. It's not a corporate resource. You know, it's it's just people that care. Well, and the one you reminded me of that I think kind of fits almost in the middle, a little bit of hybrid. When I got involved with training, uh, when I was in Boeing Computer Services, I came in actually as an entry-level property management clerk hmm. and walked away from their strategic planning department to become an independent consultant. Along the way, I became the first full-time instructor. As that organization, it really was a startup organization. Hmm. And it started, I would say, as a community of practice. They had people that were interested in training and end up teaching courses. There was very little, if any, organizational superstructure on top of it. You know, eventually we had a manager, but in the early days, I don't even remember we had a manager. Mm. It was just, you know, someone coordinated and handled the schedule. Somebody volunteered to drive the bus for a little bit. I, you know, I, I see him kind of incubate that way. The ontologue was external. That was just people on the street deciding <laughs> we want to talk about ontologies. Power to the people. Let's go. Uber ontologies. Yeah. Yeah. So is there a prescription that organizations should adhere to in the benefit for all these? Well, uh, let's go this direction. Okay. I I think kind of what you're getting at is how do you get from a group of interested people to something that actually has some cohesion Mm -hmm. and takes on some form of organizational ongoing structure? And I would say the primary driver for that, at least in Ontolog, and I probably you could generalize it a bit, was a mission. Ah. We had a shared mission. And the first mission that we formed around was really providing support back to that UBL effort. UBL means what? Oh, sorry. Universal business language. Uh-huh. This was a follow-on effort that John did uh, associated with Oasis to come with XML markup vocabularies to support e-commerce on a global basis. And a lot of what drove him was he looked at the fact that we had kind of the insider economy and the outsider economy. And that could be a recipe for, well, the West and the developed and undeveloped. If you're trying to do e-commerce with someone in Nigeria, how much effort are you going to have to put in to pull that off? Right. Right. And so this idea of common vocabularies would say, now we've got a language. Everyone can use a language and now it's, you've got a path forward. And again, the issue is if you have a market system that allows some people to participate and not others, that tends over time to be a recipe for conflict. Good point. And if you're talking about market conflict on a global basis, maybe you want to try to avoid it. And that's really what UBL was doing. Peter came in from the ontology space and was really making the argument that they needed an ontological foundation Mm. under this. So the vocabulary really would work internationally. Mm -hmm. For UBL, that was outside of the original scope, huge level of effort, nothing they could really support. They had a few exploratory conversations, but it wasn't anything they were going to jump on. I had actually taken a Cisco markup project uh, that I got brought into and had transitioned it to some degree into an ontological project because they found, as they were trying to standardize what their vocabulary is going to be, They needed metadata from other parts of the organization. There were no metadata standards inside Cisco at the time. And how do we standardize metadata? And the approach we ended up taking was, well, let's try to do some semantic formalization from the world of ontologies. That was basically the approach. And coming off of that, I saw what Peter was trying to do inside Ontolog, inside, excuse me, the UBL effort and said, I think this makes sense. But I also saw that it was a conversation that the UBL folks just really couldn't support. So I proposed 
take it outside. Is it safe to say that what we now understand as users of the internet and connectivity and standardization for the most part came from a bunch of volunteers? Yeah, that was a volunteer committee. I mean, yeah, UBL was. It was organized under Oasis. I mean, yeah, some people probably had it as part of their organizational mission and they were employed to go to meetings and the rest of it. But yeah, you know, there was no big UBL budget to pay people to build UBL. No, not at all. What I'm trying to get to is that there was no commercial sponsor of this problem-solving situation. It was just humanity coming together because there had to be something established in order to, as you said, deconflict the future of how things can work. Yeah, I, I can't say there was no commercial sponsorship. I didn't know where everybody came from. Well, what I'm saying is is that nobody um, wrote a check and said, hey, everybody, let's go do this. Go, fix- go form this yeah, committee, go yeah. form this organization. Because it, no. regardless if it's commercial or governmental, it, what I'm hearing is I, I understand where the source of the internet came from. And it was a government dollar that helped steer that mm-hmm. initially. But to get it to the, the absolute maturity level that it's at currently took a lot of volunteers and there was nobody driving. There was not the U S government driving this solution. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, it was just a global community that cared. And I'll say this, you see that a lot in the markup world. Well, that's gotta be a good thing. Individuals and groups look at a problem and they say, we need a data standard here and I'm going to invest really my life into it. You're making me think of Owen Amber. I don't know if that name's familiar. He's been working on Strat ML, the strategy markup language. And he comes out of the federal government and got associated with the Government Mm. Performance and Results Act. I bumped into that in the 90s and have some familiarity with it. And he built a markup language to try to comply Mm. to the federal requirement to document what your organization does. That's amazing. I can't say it's a one-man mission. He's got a whole bunch of people that are helping him, Mm. but there's no big, you know, commercial venture behind it. It's a group of people that share the mission and invest in trying to accomplish it. Um, One thing I, I, I thought about that was actually, I think, really important in Ontolog. A couple of Mm -hmm. factors. One was when Peter Yim came in, he brought an entire communications infrastructure, the purple wiki stuff that came out of the Engelbert community, email lists, all the rest of it, that infrastructure Mm -hmm. was there and boom, we had it. Mm -hmm. You know, my primary contribution was I led the weekly discussions and it was kind of like, well, what the hell you want to talk about this week? You know, and we had ongoing topics. It's like, and people made progress and reported back and stuff was happening. But the big one, the kicker really was when we got to invited guest Mm -hmm. speakers Mm -hmm. and we started bringing in the luminaries in the industry to talk Mm -hmm. to us, you know, like once a month. That drove the attention. It drove the participation. It drove greater numbers. And it was, we're now providing something that you couldn't get anywhere else. You could talk to one of the global industry experts in this field. Mm. And at that point, that was a big step. When they started working with NIST on the ontology summits, you know, that gave them a real annual anchor that really kind of solidified what the year runs like for the organization. And again, it's still volunteer-based. There's there's really no superstructure on top of it. Well, let's go back to what you envision the future to be. 
what is lacking right now that society of this planet needs to volunteer to fix in a technological solution similar to what we've just been talking about creating community practice develop standards things of that solution set is there anything that could help with the slowdown of extinction uh events on this planet that needs to have happen that you have not seen happen i think the primary one is consensus we need not only to improve our ability to form consensus in the age of gaslighting mm. we're in now we need to understand that we do agree and can't allow ourselves to be convinced that we don't agree. And I don't think that's necessarily technological, although certainly it's a communication process, and I can think of how you might apply technology to that. But it's not really a technology process. So how does a community build, uh, let's say that was the mission. The mission is to deconflict the disinformation out there. Kind of just, it's interesting to me that with all the power and success that humanity has had, especially since the internet's birth, mm -hmm. to do the things you've been talking about, it just sounds like we need a spark in the right direction that could really make a huge difference. Well, I, I okay, I, I think where I'd go from there, and, and maybe it's the question of spark, right? For me, it's the question of kind mm -hmm. of the, the directionality. Mm -hmm. You talk about information technology, we talk mm -hmm. about communication systems, when you get into that space, you're looking at top-down budgets, you're looking at top-down decision-making, you're looking at top-down alignment processes. And certainly in markup, you see a lot of that. We're using markup to standardize for a group of people to be able to do something very consistent. That's very top-down. One of the concerns I have is that all of this top-down focus has actually optimized the technology for those types of problems and solutions. And the challenge really is now, can we get something that's more a bottom-up technology, bottom-up communications to where the operational optimizations, the reality of day-to-day -day life, the natural economy instead of just the market economy can actually then start to drive this governance process, this decision-making process, this formation of, of consensus. That is I what I see as a challenge is how do you enable volunteers, individuals, to actually engage, form that consensus around technology issues and other types of, of policy issues. The magic spark that you've already said it already is that you've got to have that common vision of a mission that everybody says, yes, that's where we're going. And what you're saying is, is that in this most recent iteration of humanity, the gaslighting syndrome and mass media torchlighting just keeps everybody from reaching that unified mission. Well, and even more fundamentally, I look at it from a language engineering standpoint. The language which has been engineered to discuss these topics prevents mm -hmm. consensus from forming. It distracts, it camouflages, it avoids, it misdirects. I see this as significant investments. And for me, the response is, don't use that language, let's form new language. Let's talk about shared values. Let's look at essential humanity where we all agree, we all live on the planet. Our human imperatives basically exceed almost everything else. And if you work from that standpoint and stay away from the engineering processes, I, I, it's actually, I found consensus is pretty easy to find. So if we could solidify um, some language base rules 
and not have inflammatory words just thrown out there like it's actual news because it's all bias and or opinion, a lot of it. And it, it is purposeful. It is purposeful. It's selected for a reason. I, I can't imagine it's by accident. Some of the headlines or content that is out there creating more stickiness or more fuel to something that it really needs just for an emotional response, more so than a content transfer of content of knowledge. The subtlety there I'll throw in. Most of it I see being done by engineering the implicits. When you craft a message and you're using human language, every term comes with what that term implies. What's the implicit knowledge associated with it? And yeah, the phenomenon I see is let's engineer that implicit load to drive specific yeah. behavior. In the mass media sense is advertising money. It, it translates into more it. More viewers, more advertising. To wrap things up, I want you to explain to me what you think knowledge management is. Management is about protecting the future. Operations are the behaviors you engage in today to take care of today. So knowledge management is how do you protect the future of your knowledge assets? First off, you probably want to capture them. If you don't engage in knowledge capture, the process ends there. You need retention. You need transfer. You need utilization. And those activities come with costs. And if you don't invest in them, you're not managing your knowledge. Now, you know, and you can either boil that down very small or you can make it really big. And on the small side, I remember walking into a potential client and they wanted to talk knowledge management. And I said, what are we talking about? And they said, a search engine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, they didn't lady. hire me, by yeah, the way. Sure. That, 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 no. that, that project well. did not get me... Uh, <laughs> and I, I think we're, that's a great way to end because it, that search capability and or interface is is a slice of the overall, but it's... It can be really important. It can be a real show Yeah, yeah, exactly. It doesn't feel no. like a knowledge no. management system or, to me, just a little too narrow. Well, thank you for being here today, Kurt. It was uh, very informative. I, I think we should do this on a, on a weekly basis. Well, given the list of topics that you showed up with today, we've only hit, what, maybe two or three of them at this yeah. point? Yeah, I, I would say uh, this sounds like something that All could right. be done again, sure. Well, thank you, Kurt. You have just finished our latest Because You Need to Know, a public service of Pioneer Knowledge Services. Please join us on LinkedIn and find us at pioneer-ks.org.